Welcome to the Not Old Better Show. I'm Paul Vogelzang, and this is episode number 485. As part of our Inside Science interview series, our guest today is Dr. Elicio Perez Estable. Elicio Perez Estable is the director of the National Institute on Minority Health and Health Disparities at the National Institutes of Health here in Washington, D.C. Dr. Perez Estable oversees the Institute's appropriated budget to advance the science of minority health and health disparities. Under this framework, the Institute conducts and supports research programs to advance knowledge and understanding of mechanisms to improve minority health, identifies and understands health disparities, and develops effective interventions to reduce these disparities in community and clinical settings. Recently, the National Institutes of Health has awarded nearly $234 million to improve COVID-19 testing for underserved and vulnerable populations. A part of the program will support 32 institutions across the United States and will focus on populations disproportionately affected by the pandemic. These groups include African Americans, American Indians, Alaskan Natives, Latinos, Latinas, Native Hawaiians, older adults, pregnant women, and those who are homeless or incarcerated. Dr. Perez Estable will tell us why it is critical that all Americans have access to rapid, accurate diagnostics for COVID-19, especially underserved and vulnerable populations who are bearing the brunt of this disease, and why the funds from the new program will help us better understand and alleviate the barriers to testing for those most vulnerable and reduce the burden of this disease. Please join me in welcoming to the Not Old Better Show via internet phone, Dr. Elicio Perez Estable. Dr. Elicio Perez Estable, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to be speaking to you about this important subject. You, of course, are the director of the National Institute on Minority Health and Health Disparities. I think this is going to be an important subject, and I I think it has broad uh, impact across uh, many populations. We'll get into that, but I I wanted to start by asking you about the grant money that's been made available through the Rapid Acceleration of Diagnostics Initiative from NIH. How will that money be used specifically? So thank you for that question. The Funding is uh, additional appropriations from Congress in April for testing. That was the goal. So NIH received $1.8 billion in addition to their standard budget to promote testing. Of course, NIH does research, so a lot of it is going to technology development and what technology is ready for prime time and scale up and what technology needs to be uh, looked at more rigorously before it's ready. And, um, and that has advanced rather quickly. Uh, there are about, I think, 20 or so platforms that have been approved and are being uh, implemented uh, through a very rigorous process that normally takes a lot longer. So the funds really facilitated this happening quickly. But the part that NIMHD was involved in is for rapid, for rapid acceleration of diagnostics in underserved and vulnerable populations. Mm-hmm. Dr. Collins decided that on the basis of the disparities that had happened from the COVID pandemic, that we should emphasize underserved populations. So in partnership with uh, the National Institute on Aging Director and the Office of the Director, we have co-led this effort and he allocated $500 million for this program over the course of the next four years. And uh, we have funded, um, we have spent uh, almost half of that already, 
in funding uh, clinical uh, research groups to do testing in different designs in different populations uh, around the country. Um, and this has gone to existing grants. That's why we were able to do this quickly. Uh, we've stood up um, a new center at Duke University that will do the coordination, the data collection, and the data, um, the repository, as well as support the technology development and community engagement components of these projects. And then there are other smaller projects that have been funded, although we had a second receipt date for that. So we have been very uh, excited about the use of these funds for testing in underserved communities and that also allows us to evaluate novel approaches, pilot test new technologies, uh, and work with the most underserved communities in the U.S., tribal nations, um, and marginalized populations of homeless, recently incarcerated, uh, poor people of any color, uh, people with chronic diseases. So um, I believe this this has been a, a remarkable uh, a commitment on the part of NIH in a research context uh, with full support of the um, uh, Department of Health and Human Services. Well, congratulations on, on all of this. We're excited too. Certainly we, um, all of our audience is excited about the prospects of a, of a vaccine. And this, this has broad reach. We learn in the news this week that one large vaccine company has had to slow its clinical trial enrollment due to a lack of diversity. And so this issue of diversity in the clinical trial phase, it impacts all of us, minority, aged, people of color, young, everyone. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about what it means when the enrollment numbers for these clinical styles lag and what the impact is on the vaccine development overall. Right. No, and vaccine is very much on everyone's mind these days. Uh, absolutely. Mm -hmm. So specifically, um, the issue of the vaccine trials came up in uh, in the summer when the realization was that, that NIH, which is uh, collaborating with but not funding any of these trials, these are all being done by the company mm -hmm. with um, support from the government, uh, Operation Warp Speed funds for the production side, uh, may not get the most diverse set of participants in their study, just because the hunch was that then maybe they, that wasn't what they were used to doing, uh, number one. Number two, we already know that over 50% of the cases are in either African-Americans or Latinos, and that African-Americans in particular have excess mortality from severe COVID-19. So how could you have a vaccine trial where 10% of the participants were uh, of these uh, race ethnic communities? That would not go over well with anyone. Uh, and I think understanding that and, and really working with the companies uh, that this was not going to be acceptable was our first priority. Uh, so the pause of recruitment of whites into their study, and this is specifically the Moderna trial, was actually an intentional pause. It was a good thing for them to do mm -hmm. so that they could focus exclusively on African-Americans and Latinos and just uh, keep the sites that were doing that well uh, active. Um, I have to say that uh, I didn't personally think that they would do that. Um, they did. Uh, they've been successful enough to reach an acceptable level of diversity in their sample. Um, you know, 11% African-American and maybe almost 20% of Latino when it's all said and done not representative of the pandemic burden, but at least 
very much closer to the demographic representation. And of course, they're also including older adults and people with co, um, comorbidity uh, in their sample, and they have stratified for that. So I, I was pleased with the outcome of their relationship of how we um, influence them uh, with the collaboration, of course, very active uh, work, leadership of Dr. Collins and uh, folks in the department. Now, uh, because we don't see this as a one, uh, whatever they say, one dog pony, one, one dog show or one pony thing uh, in English, there are six vaccine trials in line. Um, and NIH is uh, involved in five of the six. There are also going to be therapeutic trials. Right now, they may not be for uh, ambulatory patients necessarily, uh, the monoclonal antibodies perhaps, uh, but there'll be more. And this is not going to go away with one vaccine. So we, we funded with uh, primarily NIH support, uh, internal NIH support from uh, Dr. Collins, um, what we're calling a community engagement alliance against COVID. We partner with National Heart Lung Blood Institute, this much bigger institute with more resources to uh, leverage this, and selected 11 states to fund consortia at those states, led by researchers, academic researchers, who had for years and years been working in community-engaged research, which is a model of research that our institute has supported for a long time, and which I personally had experience with. Uh, during my time at UC San Francisco as, a, as an investigator, uh, whether you worked in tobacco control or cancer screening or uh, testing for HIV or controlling diabetes or preventing stroke, there's a variety of, of investigators that have worked in this area or control of high blood pressure, another common one. Uh, and there is a, a science behind it. So we're now asking these leaders, these knowledgeable scientists, to leverage their relationships with their communities, to, to focus on this misinformation, to generate more trust in science in order to have more diversity in these studies. Now, one may say, well, why does it matter uh, to have diversity in the studies? On the one hand, um, people from different racial ethnic backgrounds may have different responses to biological uh, treatments, whether they be vaccines or drugs. Um, some of it is related to biology of the individuals related to their race, or all of it depends on their social circumstances. Um, and implementation of these, these studies does require, well, if the entire study was done with a certain group, how do we know it's going to work mm -hmm. in this other group where actually a disease is more, more problematic? People at the FDA and, and companies have been used to this with uh, therapeutic trials for drugs. And in fact, the NIH, from legislation in 1993, has had a requirement for researchers to report recruitment by gender and race ethnicity. So it is not a new concept in these studies, uh, and it does not always matter, but we can't say it doesn't matter unless you have people there. Now, the other more important thing is the perception. Right now, we have a skeptical public, a cynical public, doesn't know what to do. We hear one thing, we hear another. They're confused. The messages, frankly, have been confusing, uh, and it comes at all levels in our society. So we have to pivot and focus on science, and our scientists know how to do that, and we have to activate our partners to be trusted messengers, 
and have trusted messages. Not foolish, not pretend that things are going to be great, not pretend that things are horrible, but really stick with the evidence and that the community will be more acceptable. If a vaccine works and they say, well, we say 30% of the participants were people like you, that's better than 5% or Mm -hmm. 10%. And so I think it'll have more of a chance that we can break down those barriers that exist right now of hesitancy. You know, uh, the the Pew Foundation did a survey last month and only 30% of African-Americans would take a vaccine right now if offered. Mm -hmm. And, And although higher for some of the other groups, it is lower than it should be for every demographic, whether by gender, socioeconomic status, race, uh, ethnicity, or geography. And that is a concern that all of us need to understand and try to make a difference in. Mm-hmm. So important. So important that these big states, um, you mentioned California, big states where larger minority populations exist, Texas perhaps. So tell us maybe a little bit about what some of these communities are doing to roll out this education effort, because this is really, we're, we're really talking about a marketing plan here. Exactly. It is. And and the, I'll tell you the states that we funded initially, and this could change over the court, because we, again, we don't see this as uh, just a short-term issue. Uh, we, we're, we're, we have funding for at least a year and we don't expect this to disappear in a year. So we will be continuing this. So California, Arizona, Texas are all included. And then, uh, Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, Florida, North Carolina, Tennessee, and Michigan. Mm-hmm. Selected in large part due to where the companies were doing recruitment and the pandemic was having a disproportionate effect at that time. We also have uh, researchers at each of these places that are very skilled and very good at doing this. And so uh, that was all behind, uh, behind that effort. Marketing is a large part of it. Uh, leveraging partnerships, putting uh, messages out in social media, mm-hmm. having webinars, uh, uh, getting organizations to partner with us to sponsor activities. I did a presentation at a webinar sponsored by the NAACP, and their target audience were their health chairs uh, at their, you know, over their hundred or so sites across the country. Um, Similarly, there there have been uh, webinars that will target uh, Latino community leaders, uh, older adults or young adults, and and similarly in the um, in the African American community, uh, the four deans of the uh, HBCU medical schools, Meharry, Morehouse, Howard, and Drew, mm-hmm. also have joined with us in this effort and have uh, co-written an editorial and have been participating in these webinars. So I think that you're right. It is, it is a, a marketing campaign, but it is based on uh, understanding what messages work uh, and who the messenger should be. And there is funding for some of it independent of NIH through the uh, networks that have been created for these clinical trials. Uh, and, uh, and we are collaborating with all of them to try to promote this as much as possible. And you know, I'll give you another example. Passive recruitment doesn't work as well with minorities or with people with limited time and resources. So if they're working two jobs and, you know, how can they make a clinic appointment that's uh, nine to four? Um, They probably need evening time. They may need transportation support. Uh, They won't go to a website or look it up and register for a trial as many of us did uh, as volunteers. 
They may need a little bit of nudging or help or personal connection with a navigator or a community clinic kind of person who helps them. People have done research in this area uh, with uh, clinical trials for cancer, for example, or other conditions where uh, these community navigators really are very helpful in in recruiting uh, the underserved individuals to participate in studies. And I like to use the phrase, uh, which is uh, just to call attention to this uh, with the community, is that, you know, we've got to be at this table because mm-hmm. otherwise we might be on the menu. And so mm-hmm. we, we really have to get people to understand the value of participating. If they're willing, you know, it's all still an individual decision. We're not, mm-hmm. no one's being forced into doing anything they wouldn't individually feel comfortable with mm-hmm. and consent to. But the greater the numbers, the greater the likelihood of efficacy of the, of the vaccine, ultimately. Yeah, the goal of 30,000 per trial, they're going to achieve it. Moderna is almost there, if not, you know, they're very close. Mm. Um, the ultimate outcome that is most relevant is how many events are there. Um, they're estimating this is what they need to detect a certain number of COVID cases to see whether there's efficacy of the vaccine. Mm-hmm. That's the limiting factor. Mm-hmm. And eventually, you know, we'll be able to blend some of these results uh, at some point to see because they're all working through the same mechanism, uh, creating antibodies uh, that will be protected at least for a time. You know, nobody's expecting this as lifelong immunity, but um, it might be, you might have immunity for long enough that your own system will then learn how to defend itself against this virus. Mm-hmm. Well, the word blending makes me think, is the money going to be used for education only or is distribution contemplated with some of these funds? No, the distribution is a separate mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, charge and it is not in NIH's realm. Uh, the National Academies of uh, Medicine, Science and Engineering published a report in part commissioned by NIH to generate a distribution plan, um, and I, that's now public. And the CDC is ultimately responsible, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, for this. And there are phases of you know targeting the probably frontline workers first, particularly in the healthcare sector, and the most vulnerable in terms of chronic comorbidities. But the the specific emphasis on commu- underserved communities is in the report. Uh, and is, is throughout the report. So I think they did a good job of, of emphasizing the priority groups on the basis of what we know. And for example, children would probably be in sort of the lower priorities of the, of the different phases that they outline. Mm-hmm. But this is not for distribution at all. Mm-hmm. Well, Dr. Alicio Perez Estable, we are so grateful for your time. We're grateful for all that you're doing. Of course, you're the director at the National Institute on Minority Health and Health Disparities. I know this is keeping you busy, but what other areas are you working on there at the uh, at the Minority Health and Health Disparities uh, Unit? NIMHD is, um, is a small institute at NIH, which is a huge enterprise. Uh, it's a very exciting place to work. Uh, the intellectual stimulus and activity here about focus around science is really quite motivating. I miss the patient care part mm-hmm. <laughs> of my life. <laughs> But um, I came into this job aware that I would be giving that up. But, um, you know, at this phase of my career and my life, that seems appropriate. We fund science that is proposed by investigators on a broad array of topics. 
Some of it is behavior change. Some of it is around behavioral mechanisms. Others is around biology, uh, differences in the genetics of different cancers, for example, um, or what's called uh, epigenomics, where how genes change because of social environments. In, in our case, we funded a number of grants in that, in that topic. We have to see what the results are. As I learned early, the things you fund uh, today, it'll take five years before you see results. So you don't go into this into this job thinking, uh, oh, I'll be here for three years and, and, and be gone. Uh, you know, it's, it's a long-term commitment to see whether what you, the programs you set up are, are actually making a difference. We have a, a, a significant investment in the research centers for minority institutions, which target institutions with low uh, research funding from NIH. Many of these are historically black colleges and universities, but not all. Um, there are institutions like Meharry and Morehouse and Jackson State and Tuskegee and uh, Morgan State in the area, but there are also institutions like Florida International, San Diego State, um, and uh, UC uh, Riverside hmm. that are minority serving and have lower resources of NIH funding. We also have a special program for um, American Indian, Alaska Native. Uh, there's a, a program called the Tribal Epidemiology Centers that CDC primarily funds but we have always provided some funding for it, and I'm looking to make that more robust and create a, a mechanism to support their uh, capacity building of, of scientists who are from the tribal communities. Uh, and there's 11 of these uh, are organized uh, through the Indian Health Service uh, regions. And the Indian Health Service is a partner, and, and they're delighted that we have interest in, in doing more of that. And we do sort of call-outs for particular areas. Uh, they're often in specific areas. Sometimes we set aside money that motivates people to send this award. Hmm. They know there's definitely going to be money there. We did one this past year on maternal morbidity, mortality disparities, and we funded five new projects in that topic, um, which is very good uh, for us. Um, but generally, they're just sort of, they compete, they get it reviewed, they get scored, and then we make decisions we have too many good projects we can't fund. That's the typical NIH uh, Institute uh, complaint. Mm -hmm. We also fund um, career awards that we call K awards in the NIH. Uh, that's a program that we started three years ago and it has had good success uh, in getting applications because we always have to think ahead of the next generation of scientists. What NIMHD does not do is fund uh, a lot in the basic science, you know, the mouse models or the pure laboratory medicine. Um, we start with human tissue or human applications uh, out to communities and uh, systems. Uh, so that's the one thing that differentiates us some from the rest of NIH. In a nutshell. <laughs> in a nutshell. Well, Dr. Alicio Perez Estable, we are so grateful for your time. We're grateful for all that you're doing. We hope that you're staying well during these quarantining times and that your family is well, that you're getting a little exercise outside, maybe enjoying some of the fresh air, but uh, we'd love to have you back and follow up on some of this work that you're doing. Love to be back and thank you for uh, taking the time to talk to me about these important issues and I look forward to talking to you again. Thank you, Dr. Perez Estable. My thanks to Dr. Elicio Perez Estable and the NIH for their help in arranging our interview. My thanks to you, our wonderful Not Old Better Show audience. Please be safe, everyone. Practice smart social distancing. And please talk about better, the Not Old Better Show. Thanks, everybody.
Thank you.